You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Today, we finish uh, our series in the book of Judges. And I know that makes you sad. I know you could stay in this book forever, and it just sets such a great tone and mood for all of your holiday gatherings and festivities. Uh, But, like all things, it does come to an end. Uh, And we actually have been, at least it's felt like this to me, probably you as well, flying through this book. Uh, We've been flying through the book of Judges. We do this podcast every Monday called Sermon B-Sides, and some of the questions that you have sent in have been really good and have traced some of the threads that we just haven't even been able to touch in our actual um, sermons on Sunday. So thanks to all of you who have sent uh, those uh, questions in. Um, Keep them coming. We we really appreciate those and love to see you engaging uh, with this book, even beyond what we can do uh, in the sermons themselves. But in light of and continuing with this pattern of flying through the book, rather than just one or two chapters to close out the series, we're going to do five chapters uh, all together today, uh, the last five chapters all at once. And there's actually a reason uh, that we set it up this way. Chronologically, Judges actually ends with Samson. So the first 16 chapters of the book of Judges trace the, the, the narratives of these 12 deliverers that God raises up to rescue his people. Uh, when, when, uh, when Samson is ruling, when he dies, it's within a couple decades of that that the first king over the people of Israel, a man named Saul, uh, rises up and becomes that first, that first king. So where that, those first 16 chapters follow the chronological storyline, the last five chapters give us more of a, an on-the-ground glimpse of what was playing out among the people. And they contain, uh, these five chapters, two stories, um, two vignettes, Uh, We might call the the last five chapters collectively uh, the tale of two Levites. The tale of two Levites. Uh, In chapters 17 and 18, we meet a Levite traveling northward from Bethlehem. And then in chapters 19 through 21, another Levite traveling southward to Bethlehem. And as you'll hear, uh, if you've never heard these stories before, you'll hear in just a moment, um, these are shocking and repulsive accounts in Scripture. Some of the worst that you see in all of Scripture. Uh, They offer a front row seat to what we are capable of when we pursue what is right in our own eyes. So we're going to read some selections, actually, from all five of these chapters. We won't even touch the entirety of of all five chapters. would encourage you to take time to do that on your own uh, as you're able. But I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Judges chapter 17. Uh, And I'll begin in verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his own sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. 
Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Chapter 18, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. They came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Skip down to chapter 18, verse 29. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, that's this first Levite's name, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Chapter 19, then, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. This Levite then goes after his concubine at Bethlehem. We pick up the story down in verse 11 when they depart from Bethlehem. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw to one of those places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Skip down to chapter 19, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened before, 
never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. Skip down to verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, to the people of Israel. And so a civil war breaks out, plus a massacre and a genocide. Fast forward to verse 30, 35, chapter 20. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destro- destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Skip ahead to verse 46. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Chapter 21, verse 6. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Verse 20. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to him, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Hard as they are to read, these are the words of the Lord. And thanks be to God for them. Let me pray for us. Lord God, through Jesus, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. And so we ask now for eyes to see it, for ears to hear it, for hearts to hold it, and for hands to serve it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our greater king and the king of kings. Amen. Amen. These uh, are hard words, hard chapters. Uh, and they are bookended by really what has become perhaps the most well-known refrain in the book of Judges. Uh, chapter 17, verse 6, and then again chapter 21, verse 25 say, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Uh, of course, if you've been with us in this series over these past months, over these past chapters, there's another refrain that's been playing out in this book, one that we've seen over and over again. It goes like this. The people, again, did what was evil in the what? In the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord. So as we close Judges, we're meant to, to put these two refrains side by side. What Israel perceived as right in their own eyes was evil in God's. And this unresolved, incomplete ending, the tribes just sort of meandering back home to their own territory, presents a question to all of us and anyone really who has read these words of this book since. And the question is this, whose eyes will you see through? Whose eyes, whose sight will you live by? Will you pursue what is right in your own eyes or will you pursue what is right in the eyes of God? This tale of two Levites shows us really the perils of doing what is right in our own eyes. The first Levite, the account of the first Levite shows us how, how this corrupts religious life. And the account of the second Levite shows us how, how it corrupts moral life. And so we might sum it up by saying this. When we do what is right in our own eyes, religion is idolatry and morality is depravity. Religion is idolatry and morality is depravity. And we'll spend just the rest of our time talking through those two, those two things. So first, really what chapters 17 and 18 show us, religion becomes idolatry when we do what is right in our own eyes. Before we even meet this, this first Levite, we meet a man named Micah. Great character. He's robbed his own mother. And he's only returned her money because she, he heard her cursing the person who stole it. He overhears her pronouncing a curse, and so he is fearful about that. He gives the money back. His mother then uses some of that money to commission carved and metal images. And Micah then takes these items along with an ephod, puts them in a shrine, and ordains one of his own sons as his priest. In other words, he makes up his own religion. He makes up his own religion and his own practices of worship. Throughout these closing chapters, there's a, there's a veneer, a very thin veneer of faithfulness. There's a lot of talk of priests there's an ephod. There's paying lip service to God. There's doing things in the name of God, all the while disregarding the actual way that God has called his people to know him and to worship him. When Micah's mother commissions these images, she explicitly says she is dedicating them to the Lord, to Yahweh. So think about it this way. In God's name, she is blatantly violating God's second commandment, which says, don't do that. Don't make for yourself, any kind of carved or graven image. To Micah's mother, though, this seems like the right thing to do. She's got some of her money back. She said, thank God, let me build an idol that we can now worship. And to Micah, it seems right to then set up his own place of worship and his own religious practices, to ordain one of his own sons who has no business being a priest. His own son is not a Levite. This is idolatry. Idolatry. But it's not idolatry, as we might think of it, often, which is an overt rejection of God. The scary part of this is that all of this is done in God's name with the people thinking that it's actually the right way to do things. Idolatry is devoting ourselves to something or someone other than the one true God. That's a, a short definition for idolatry. 
but like the golden calf in the wilderness, like Gideon's ephod, a couple chapters before in Judges, like these household images, if we worship God in our own way, rather than the way he's prescribed, we aren't worshiping God at all. We're actually making God in our image rather than being formed in his. We're seeing God through our own eyes rather than learning to see God and see ourselves and see all of life through his. And so we see here the idolatry that has crept into this one household. But then as we meet this first Levite, we find out it's actually much broader than that. The idolatry has spread beyond that. This Levite leaves Bethlehem heading north, and he's aimless, He's not sure really where he's going or what he's going to do or where he's going to land. But when Micah meets him and learns he's a Levite, on the spot, he hires him as his priest. It'd be like this. It'd be like if nine years ago, I was just kind of walking around the streets of central Pennsylvania, and Steve Huber drove up in his old beat-up Saturn and rolled the window down and said, hey, who are you? What are you doing? I said, I don't know. Just kind of figuring it out. He's like, you want to plant a church? Sure. Yeah, okay. Let's do that. Let's go. There's so much wrong with this picture. It, it actually makes a mockery of the priesthood. Priests, according to the design of God, are set-apart servants who connect people to God and connect God to the people, who intercede for people, who bless people in the very name of God. This guy does it for a paycheck. And soon enough, he'll take a better offer, he'll take a larger paycheck to do that with an entire tribe. So this isn't a a real priest who loves God and loves people and pours himself out for the good of their souls. He's just a mercenary. He's just a hired hand. Whoever pays the most, he's in. Moreover, at the end of chapter 18, we learn that this Levite is named Jonathan and that he's the son of Gershom, who's the son of Moses. So within a couple generations... This idolatry with a religious veneer has found its way in not only to Israel in general, but to the family line of Moses himself. Not to mention in all of this, who does Micah think he is? Who does Micah think he is? He ordains his son. He ordains this guy you just met off the street. Apparently, robbing your own mother qualifies you to be a bishop in the period of the judges. You can just ordain whoever you want, whenever you want. But we gain a glimpse into his heart, into his mind, In chapter 17, verse 13, when Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. And this is the motive of idolatrous religion. Pure religion, true religion, worships God out of love. It worships God in response to the glory and the grace of the creator and sustainer of all things. Idolatrous religion says, What can I get from God? How can I somehow put God in my debt so that he owes me something, that he owes me a blessed life? I'll do the religious actions. I'll do the right things, at least the right things in my own eyes, because ultimately I want to use God to give me something else. And that something else, of course, is your real God, the real object of your heart's devotion. You're just trying to use God to get that. So this idolatry works its way from a household into the priesthood and then into an entire tribe. As we read at this point, the tribe of Dan was still seeking a land to dwell in. We read back in chapter 1 that they'd been pushed back into the hill country. And so now, finally, they've resolved to secure an inheritance for themselves. 
And surely they think that's the right thing. We should do this. And in a sense, it is. It's the right desire to to possess some of the land that God granted to them. It's just the wrong time and the wrong place. The, The time for them to find this passion, to put forth this kind of effort, was earlier. It was when they first entered the land and when they first got driven back into the hill country. That was the time to rally and do something. Delayed disobedience ultimately is still, I should say, delayed obedience ultimately is still disobedience. And on top of that, it's the wrong place. It's the wrong place. Rather than occupying the land that God gave them, which would have been really difficult, we didn't get to read this part of the account, but if you go back and read it on your own time, you'll see, they find an unsuspecting, isolated, and defenseless group of people, and they take their land, which is outside the promised land altogether. So what is right in their eyes is easy. It doesn't really require dependence. It doesn't really require faith in God to accomplish. And in the process of all of that, the tribe of Dan poaches this Levite from Micah and Micah's household. They move the Levite, they steal Micah's household gods, his carved images, and they move them to their new home and set up their own place of worship. And as chapter 18, verse 31 reminds us, the tabernacle, the right place, the proper place for worship was at Shiloh. Their counterfeit place and their counterfeit line of priests, Jonathan, this Levite, and his sons, becomes a center of idolatrous worship until centuries later, the land is conquered and the people are exiled. See, in their eyes, Dan has secured a proper place, and because they've got a Levite now, they've secured a proper priest. But it's all wrong. It is all evil in the eyes of God. The idolatry here in chapter 17 and 18 takes more obvious forms. There are literal statues, literal idols carved in metal images. There are religious practices. There are priests. The idols in our lives are often much more subtle than that. But we're just as susceptible to practice idolatry, all the while convincing ourselves it's the right thing to do. So maybe, like Micah, it's doing religious activity to try and put God in our debt to earn God's blessing. Where, where might you in your own life find that approach creeping into your mind? Where you're doing some kind of religious action or activity to try to earn something from God. When you're really honest with yourself, what is it that you think God owes you because you claim his name and follow him? Stress-free job? Compliant kids? A lot of time for leisure? Your hobbies? Freedom from suffering in your life? If instead of loving God and responding to his grace, you do religious activity to try to put God in your debt, your lenses are off. And if your lenses are off, what is right in your own eyes might just as well be evil in the eyes of God. Now, maybe it's not like Micah. Maybe you're like Jonathan, the Levite. And maybe, like him, you play a religious part. You take on a religious role. Because for you, that feeds some kind of idol of recognition or respectability or whatever it might be. Uh, For Jonathan, it was also a stable job and a paycheck. What mattered to him was not actually living out the purpose of his life, was not actually living out the purpose of his role as a priest. He was for sale to the highest bidder and thereby became an idolater. Or maybe, not like Micah or like Jonathan, maybe like the entire tribe of Dan, we find ourselves trying to make up for past disobedience by prescribing our own modified version of obedience. 
because that's actually easier than what God calls us to. It's easier. Have you lowered the bar in your own life of what obedience to God actually entails? With your time, with your wallet, with your body, are you truly committed to God's ways or is your own way, is your own slightly modified approach good enough? Is it, is it right in your own eyes? So this is one way that things unravel when we do what is right in our own eyes. Religion becomes idolatry. But second, chapters 19 through 21, these show us that in our own eyes, morality is depravity. Morality is depravity. We meet the second Levite, the, the southbound Levite, we might call him, at the beginning of chapter 19. And immediately, something is off about the situation. What is a Levite doing with a concubine? Any original reader would be like, this is wrong. Something's off here. A concubine is kind of like a second-class wife, part wife, part servant, or even slave. Seemed to be a whole spectrum of how that was practiced among different people and places, even in the history of, of Israel. But sometimes in this account, this Levite is referred to as her husband, other times as her master. And whatever was playing out with other people in their practice of having concubines, it's abundantly clear that in this Levite's case, she was more of a possession and a status symbol than, than someone he actually loved and cared for. As this story unfolds, a scholar named Michael Wilcock points out a few ways in which morality, people doing what they believe to be right or moral in their own eyes, actually becomes the most repulsive kinds of depravity that we encounter in the entire book. The first attempt at morality is hospitality. Hospitality, which is a good virtue, which is actually a, a qualification for leaders in Jesus' church. When this Levite and his concubine arrive in the town of Gibeah, no one from that town offers them the hospitality that would have been expected in an ancient Near Eastern culture. So then when another sojourner, when another man who's traveling and, and from a different town but living there now, says, hey, don't stay out here in the town square, come and stay with me. At first, when we're reading that, we think, oh, finally, some virtue, some morals. This man is going to show hospitality. As we read, wicked men of that city of Gibeah come knocking that night. And in the name of hospitality, this man, this host, is willing to offer up his own virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. And mind you, he, he's doing what he thinks is right. He's doing what he thinks is right. He says, this Levite is my guest. It'd be a failure of my own care. It'd be a failure of my hospitality to send him out there. So here instead are these two expendable women. Do whatever you want with them. As a father of three daughters, I get sick over this account. I don't understand the instinct. I don't understand the callousness and the utterly disordered priorities and the calculation that says, okay, preserve the, the guest, but offer your own daughter. Like, I'm not a particularly bloodthirsty man. I don't have a particularly murderous nature. But the only way that something like this happens in my home is if I'm already dead. Because that, made in the image of God, that is what men do. Men sacrifice and lay down their lives. They don't offer up any of the vulnerable people in their own homes, be they guests or especially their own daughters, and they don't do that in the name of morality. They don't do that in the name of hospitality. But when people do what is right in their own eyes, morality becomes depravity. 
If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, this story is eerily familiar. It's almost exactly what happened in a city called Sodom in Genesis 19. But Sodom was a pagan city. It was a place where Lot and his family sojourned. This is Gibeah. This is an Israelite city, a city of the tribe of Benjamin. And Sodom became, in the Old Testament, it was the epitome of wickedness. It's what wickedness looked like. Now Sodom is among them, in Israel. The moral fabric has unraveled not only out there among the pagans, it's, it's unraveled in here among the people of God. A second way that morality becomes depravity is in the pursuit of justice. Pursuit of justice. After his concubine's death, this Levite cuts her body into 12 parts and sends them around Israel. The other tribes receive parts of her body and then rally together at a place called Mizpah. The Levite then at Mizpah, conveniently leaving out his own culpability in all of this, retells generally his version of the story, and the the other tribes are, are now ready to fight. The tribes really are right about something here. This demands justice. This demands justice. And they start well enough. They start by telling the tribe of Benjamin, hey, give us those wicked men from Gibeah so that they can face justice. But Benjamin doubles down. None of you are going to punish some of us. And it's the same kind of warped and misplaced and really wicked loyalty that has led, for example, some churches to protect sexual abusers rather than victims. It's this kind of warped and misplaced loyalty why we all tend to minimize the horrible and vile things that people do as long as they're on our team, politically or whatever other way. When Benjamin refuses, action is required. There still is justice demanded. But as, you, as we read this, the tribe's pursuit of justice is so disproportionate to the crime. In the end, their, their pursuit of justice actually becomes genocide for an entire tribe. All but 600 men of Benjamin are wiped out and their cities are burned. It's gone so far beyond even just a civil war. Women and children have been murdered. And in in seeking to, as they put it in chapter 20, verse 13, purge the evil from Israel, they have just brought more evil. In their pursuit of justice, they have enacted an even greater injustice. And I think this is such a relevant, applicable point for us in our cultural moment. We hear a lot in the news today about justice. As God's people, we must see and must pursue justice truly through God's eyes and not through what is right in our own. It is so easy for us to seek forms of justice which seem right to us, but actually bring new and worse forms of injustice. In our own eyes, morality is depravity. In our own eyes, our cures can be infinitely worse than the disease itself. And I'll mention just one example that we just don't even have close to enough time to really do well this morning. But one example of this is in our current conversations about race and racial division that exists in our world, in our nation, in our culture today. Where racism continues to exist, it is injustice. It is wrong. It is evil. And let us always be clear about that. Where systems like the criminal justice system need reform, we should advocate for and bring reform. But in God's eyes, 
Justice is never trading one flawed type of power for another flawed type of power dynamic. In God's eyes, justice is not assuming that every system and every structure and every relationship is automatically and inherently racist and therefore needs to be torn down. Some of the justice that is being advocated for today is opening the door for other forms of injustice and in seeking to purge one evil because truly racism is evil. We're only introducing other forms of it. So there's hospitality, there's justice. The last way we see the pursuit of morality becoming depravity here has to do with restoration or restitution. Finally waking up to the horror of what has happened, what they've done, almost an entire tribe of their people wiped out. The other tribes have compassion on Benjamin. They, they don't really want Benjamin to disappear from the face of the earth. Incidentally, most scholars believe that chronologically, all of this was happening near the beginning of the period of the judges. Because by the end of the book, by, by the end of Samson's time, Benjamin has actually been built back up pretty substantially as a tribe. It's actually the tribe from which Saul, uh, the first king over Israel, comes. But here's the insanity of this and why sin, why doing what is right in our own eyes truly is a downward spiral. In seeking to purge evil from the land, these tribes have perpetrated a worse evil. But rather than learn from that, now faced with another problem, one that they created themselves, they also think themselves capable of coming up with a solution. Oh, we got this now. I know we just made that so much worse, but we'll do better this time. And so we're not surprised when that goes horribly as well. In their initial anger, when they rallied together, these tribes, actually very much like Jephthah a few ch chapters ago, they made a rash vow. They actually made two rash vows. One was that they would not give their daughters in marriage to someone from the tribe of Benjamin. The other one was that anyone who didn't join them at their rally at Mizpah would be put to death. And so now, rather than repenting of these vows that they shouldn't have taken in the first place, they just charge ahead with a new plan. Well, Jabesh Gilead, they weren't there for our rally. So first, we'll kill everyone from Jabesh Gilead except the unmarried virgins. That'll get us 400 of the 600 women that we need. And then, and then we'll let the other 200 men, the other 200 Benjaminites, lie in ambush and snatch some wives from the daughters of Shiloh. And they thought this was their, this was their good plan. They thought this was right. They just used the word snatch in relationship to marriage and women, and no one went, hey, maybe we should think about this. This is what was right in their own eyes. This is how depraved things are in Israel. It's not them purposefully doing the wrong thing. It's them doing what is right in their own eyes. Because to them now, they've fulfilled their two vows. And the men of Shiloh, well, they're clear because they technically didn't give their daughters to the Benjaminites. They were taken. And now we're even with Benjamin because all 600 of their remaining men have a wife and they can procreate and the tribe will go on. God help you when this is what seems right. As the prophet Isaiah will go on to write a couple centuries later, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And then the very next verse, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. In their own eyes. See, in our own eyes, good is evil. Light is darkness. Wisdom is is folly, morality is depravity. 
we desperately need a straight edge. We need something against which to measure our lives and our thoughts and our pursuits. In our day, many people balk at the idea of moral absolutes. So as long as something doesn't interfere with anyone else too much, it's actually become kind of a cultural value that everyone should do what is right in his or her own eyes. And God have mercy, we actually as a culture think that's the way to human flourishing. We think that's the way to human flourishing. We think Judges 17 through 21 is the exception when things go bad when you pursue what is right in your own eyes. Judges 17 through 21 is the rule. Judges 17 through 21 is what moral subjectivism looks like when it's given enough room and enough time to run. This is what it will always try to take. In his commentary on Judges, Tim Keller says this, said, sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience. It does not ultimately consist of violating our personal standards or community standards, but rather violating God's will for us. You have a conscience, all of you, all of us, and it's been given to you by God, and it's immensely helpful in so many aspects of your life, but it is not infallible. It is not infallible. It is susceptible to corruption. And your instincts and your feelings and your intuitions, they might serve you. They probably have and they no doubt will serve you really well in many moments of your life. But if that is the bedrock for your morality, if you have nothing against which to measure your conscience and your feelings and your instincts, then is it not also possible, is it not also likely that at times what is right in your eyes will be evil in the eyes of God. Let judges shake up your self-reliance. Let it introduce the healthiest form of self-doubt into your life. Our own eyes, left to ourselves, they are not enough. It's not good advice to simply follow your heart or always let your conscience be your guide. Both Jewel and Jiminy Cricket lied to you. Can we just say it that way? Jewel and Jiminy Cricket lied to you. That's not good advice. Let judges forever etch in our minds the folly of trusting yourself. At the very same time, though, let judges drive you to look expectantly for the rescue of God. The book, as we heard, ends with this cliffhanger. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And that is the author's way of saying to those at the very bottom of the spiral, to those immersed in this kind of idolatry, this kind of depravity, saying to them, now lift your eyes and watch what I will do. A monarchy is coming. A man named David, a man after God's own heart is coming, but it is ultimately to David's greater son, Jesus Christ, to which the book of Judges points. And today, as Mallory shared earlier, is the, this last Sunday before we begin our, our celebration of Advent together. This day is known as Christ the King Sunday. And the linens on this table and the linens on the cross are white today because of the absolute holiness and purity of the one true King. We need a straight edge against which to measure our lives and our thoughts and our feelings. And Jesus is that straight edge. We need a king who will bring real justice, not just introduce new forms of injustice. We need a king whose cure to all that has gone wrong with the world will truly deal with the disease of sin and not just make things worse. And by his birth and by his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, 
Jesus Christ has become that king. As we remember his first advent in the coming weeks, as we relive the anticipation that was building throughout the Old Testament, throughout this period of the judges, throughout the monarchy even, and throughout the exile, and even the centuries after the exile, let us now also anticipate Jesus' second advent. Christ the King, Christ our King, will come again to judge the world in righteousness. Every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he is the King of kings. And on that day, what is truly good, what is truly just, what is truly right, not in our own eyes, but in the eyes of God, will become our everyday experience and our eternal home. Will you give up the folly of doing what is right in your own eyes? Will you instead learn to see all of life through his? Let's pray. Father, we desperately need Jesus. And we see in Judges how horrible things get when we do what is right in our own eyes, and we do not think ourselves above it. This would be our lives apart from your gracious intervention. And so lead us this morning to recognize the depths of our sin and what we are capable of. Lead us also, though, to rejoice that you came to rescue your people. And in the work of Christ, you have accomplished that rescue of your people. And we thank you, as hard as these words are in Judges, we thank you for making your divine truth real to us. We ask that what we do now and how we live and the way that we love would increasingly become a worthy response to the great salvation of Jesus Christ. Let me pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.